Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jess Dory. And we take deep, irreverent dives into lesser-known corners of American history. This is facts. <laughs> yeah, yep. Yeah. Just I don't know what to say anymore. It's a good thing that uh, this episode is the finale of our fourth season. After this, I'm going to go retreat into a series of rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back better and better than ever when you least expect it. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to share a conversation that I had with Dr. Karen L. Cox, a historian and author of several books, including No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments, and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Oh, wow. This is going to be an important episode. Um, yeah, yeah, like a this, special episode, like I an mean, after school special? I, I'm here. I am ready, but I forgot about all my anticipatory feelings mm. from the last episode about it's this okay. one. It's okay. So now I'm like, oh, wait. This is, I got to listen. I <laughs> I mean, I do every time, but mm-hmm. I need to, all right, I'm listening. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Um, so I recently encountered one of these monuments when I visited Austin, Texas for the first time for work. I had a little bit of time before my flight to stop by the Capitol there. And I was walking around when I came to a monument known as the Confederate Soldiers Monument or mm-hmm. Confederate Dead Monument. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got four figures of nameless soldiers uh, mm. representing the infantry, cavalry, artillery, and, and the Navy um, around each corner. And then on the top is Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Oh, wow. Now, Davis wasn't from Texas. He didn't die in the war, but he's on top of this Texas dead Confederates mm-hmm. monument. That little inaccuracy, though, is nothing compared to what's inscribed on the front of this thing. Okay. It says, died for state rights guaranteed Uh, under the Constitution. Oh, man, that is a can of worms if I ever have heard one or seen one or read one. You've you've experienced cans of worms in several ways, and it's all What do you mean in several ways? Like you just said, seeing, reading, hearing, eating. Yeah, that's where I draw the line. (laughs) Um, So I found myself staring at these words, written in stone with authority and seen by... I'm sure millions of people for 120 years. And it made me realize just how ingrained this idea is. The idea that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Mm. And the inscription goes on to say, The people of the South, animated by the spirit of 1776, to preserve their rights, withdrew from the federal compact in 1861. The North resorted to coercion. The South, against overwhelming numbers and resources, fought until exhausted. Okay. Some of that may be true. No. <laughs> Actually, until exhausted? Well. Yeah, so resorted to coercion. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that There's statement. so much going on. I don't know where to begin. But, I mean, for someone who's pretty ignorant about why masses of people th- are saying 
in the South that it's states, right? So not about slavery. Can you educate me and the rest of us a little bit about why and how that came about? Absolutely. That's what we're going to be doing with our interview with Dr. Cox. Okay. We're going to get into the details of that. She's going to speak to the effort to reframe the Confederacy's values into something noble. But first, I want to take a little time to make it crystal clear that the South seceded so they could preserve and spread the institution of slavery. That is the reason. And anyone who tells you otherwise is either mistaken or lying or both. And we know this because they announced it. For example. Who's they? The The, South. The whole South made an announcement? Uh, Individual states made announcements. They they had articles of secession. They had um, basically bills that they would vote on to secede. And it laid out their reasons. It laid out what was going on. Mm -hmm. When you say secede... It means they, they're leaving the United States. Okay. They're saying we are no longer part of the United States. Because of slavery. Okay. Yeah. Which is not a legal thing to do. Right. Even though they thought it was. To secede from the United States? Right. Okay. A state can't just leave. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, for example, in Texas's Articles of Secession, which said why they were leaving to form the Confederacy. These articles, by the way, in Texas were approved by 76% of voters. Do you know what's not mentioned once in those articles? State rights? That's correct. (laughs) But slavery is mentioned a lot. Texas said it was leaving the Union because the northern states had what they called an unnatural feeling of hostility (sighs) to these southern states and their beneficent and patriarchal system of African slavery. Mm -hmm. So they said they were leaving to create a free government (laughs) where all white men were entitled <laughs> to equal civil and political rights. Okay. And and I quote, the servitude of the African race as existing in these states is mutually beneficial to both bond and free and the will of the almighty creator. So saying that slavery is a positive thing and that they're better off this way. Yeah, it's a good thing. They're better off this way. Um, I don't know why the North doesn't like it. That's why we're leaving and God agrees with us. Okay. Yeah. We focus a lot on presidents here. Mm-hmm. You know. Here in this podcast? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you mean here in this country? <laughs> you know, both, I Where guess. Where is here? <laughs> Today, we're going to look at a vice president. Not of the United States, though. Hmm. Of the Confederate States of America. This vice president, he was a man named Alexander Hamilton Stevens. That's confusing. Yeah, we're just going to call him Alexander Stevens. Okay. Do you want to see a picture of him? Is he going to be another Calhoun that's, you know, I have nightmares about? <laughs> you can't say no. I can't say no. Here, here's Alexander <laughs> H. Stevens. was too long. Oh, Lord. He's kind of androgynous, actually. I could see he's that. He's definitely not as bad as Calhoun. <laughs> no, he's no Calhoun, but he, he does look like... Like something happened. Yeah. Um, I love the bifocals hanging from his neck. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no words. His face looks rather weathered. He's clearly a white yeah, man. Yeah, I had weathered written down here. Oh, did you? Yeah. We're in sync. Huh. Um, he has a crossover or a comb over, <laughs> I should say, with little hairlets <laughs> behind. I don't know. I don't have words for this man. I think something's going on there. No, he's a weathered man with hairlets. 
Yeah. He's a weathered man with hairlets. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's, he seems to be swallowed by the suit, kind of like how a Yentl. He reminds me of Yentl. Yentl, okay. Yeah, a little bit. I wasn't expecting that, but <laughs> interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, after his state of Georgia seceded from the Union, and after Lincoln was elected president of the U.S., Alexander Stevens gave a speech to an adoring crowd of at least 2,000 people gathered at the Athenium in Savannah, Georgia. Mm -hmm. It was a packed house. There were just as many people outside who couldn't get in. Stevens was there to talk about the new Confederate government and how the Confederate Constitution was different and far superior to the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. And these people were extremely eager to hear what he had to say. You can't hear the words that Stevens used and still think the Civil War was somehow not about slavery or that slavery wasn't the most important thing to the South. You just, you can't. Stevens straight up says, the new constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro and our form of civilization. Wow, the The proper status. So did they call it slavery? Yeah, they they didn't always like to use that word, but yeah. Yeah, okay. They had no problem. They didn't like to call it what it was. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the gist of the South in this episode. Yeah, I was just curious if they like, if they called it slavery and were still okay with it or if they were hiding that. Oh, you'll see soon. Okay. Yeah. And he made it clear. He said, this, meaning African slavery, was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. So the vice president of the Confederacy is saying right there, (laughs) we seceded to preserve slavery. Mm -hmm. Nothing about states' rights. Mm -hmm. Then Stevens calls out Thomas Jefferson's view on slavery. And normally when someone criticizes Jefferson about slavery, I'm all ears. But Stevens manages to do it in a way that makes Jefferson look like the good guy. (sighs) He says that Jefferson ignorantly believed that slavery was an evil in principle socially, morally, and politically. He says that in these beliefs, Jefferson and the founders were fundamentally wrong. Wow. Yeah, he's saying that the big problem with the founders uh, wasn't that they owned slaves. It was that they thought slavery was eventually going to die out and that it was immoral, Um, but they were wrong. So, I mean, our founders were many things and flawed in many ways. For example saying they don't promote slavery, but then having slaves. Yes, yes. Obviously, that's a problem. Um, But yeah, just this just takes it just one step further in a, in a, I mean, honestly, a crazy direction. It it seems like it. It's so, it's so backwards to be interpreting things that way. Yeah. I I have a little trouble with it. He says. Or a lot. (laughs) I have a big trouble with it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, agreed. He says, Our new government's foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. And this was all written up in a newspaper, this speech. Uh, and this isn't what he's thinking in his head. This is like, I'm going to publicize this. No, 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 no. Is that this, what you're saying? No. What I'm saying is this was a speech that he gave, and it was apparently um, extemporaneous. I don't think he had all these remarks prepared. Oh. So he was speaking from the heart. Yeah, this is his truthful 
These are his feelings. Yeah, and uh, a reporter from the Savannah Republican wrote this up. So there are notes about what's going on in the room and the crowd's reactions uh, mixed in with this verbatim oh, as best man, he could speak. you must speech. have eaten that alive. You uh, must have loved reading that. Um, I, I can't say that I loved reading this because it's <laughs> disturbing stuff. Directly after Stephen says that black people are not equal to white people and that slavery is natural and normal, the reporter puts one word in parentheses. Applause. Okay. This became known as the so corner- disturbing. Yeah. This became known as the cornerstone speech. Uh, and a week later, Stevens went to a reception in Atlanta where he said it even more succinctly. He said, we have made African inequality and subordination and the equality of white men the chief cornerstone of the Southern Republic. It's appalling. Stevens, he made it clear that this wasn't about a few states maintaining the status quo. Um, he wanted their white supremacist beliefs spread. He said he expected full recognition of this principle throughout the civilized and enlightened world. He says that with the Confederacy, all of the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal in the eye of the law. Not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. He reiterated it over and over. It was a call to white people. Mm. In this new republic, we are all equal, and you are all better than the people that we are enslaving because God wants us to. And it's funny how you can turn God into to bending your own will, you know? Yeah, it wasn't just God, but he, he railed against those who opposed slavery, um, saying that they were attempting to make things equal, which the creator had made unequal. So he's saying this stuff. He's saying that God supports it. But at the same time, he's also saying that it's an evolved scientific view that um, black people were inferior. So he's he's making up stuff about science. He's making yeah. up stuff about religion. Um, all of this stuff to justify these biases. Mm-hmm. At the end of his speech, it was said that there was a burst of enthusiasm and applause such as the Athenium had never had displayed within its walls. The crowd ate it up. It's hard to hear. Yeah. Yeah. The best thing you can say for him here is that he had the the lack of inhibition to say what some people would, would say as he said the quiet part loud. He said what people were thinking mm -hmm. um, in ways that a lot of other people were skirting around or using euphemisms. Um, but he just went for it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's heavy. Yeah. This man, he served as the vice president of the Confederacy. And after they were defeated, Georgia sent him to the U.S. Senate. But he couldn't take his seat because there were restrictions then on former Confederates. But Georgia didn't stop there. They really loved this man and his beliefs so much that later in 1873, they sent him to the House of Representatives. And he served there for nine years before Georgia elected him to be their governor. So this wasn't someone on the fringe. This was someone whose beliefs were shared and supported and literally applauded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this wasn't an outlier. No. This is no. Com the common thought. Yeah. In, in the Confederate States. Yeah. I mean, these thoughts were probably shared by not a small amount of Northerners, too. Right, right. I was going to say, and probably significantly in the Northern yeah. States, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but he, I can imagine how dangerous it would be to be a slave or a person of color in the South. Yeah. It's 
sounds just incredibly dangerous. Yeah, even Freed, he's making it clear that that you're not equal and you never will be. Yeah. In the eyes of the law and God. And science. And yeah, yeah. In the statuary hall of the U.S. Capitol, each state has two statues that they've sent there. And one of Georgia's statues is of Alexander Stevens. There's been some momentum recently to try to get Georgia to replace that statue with the late Representative John Lewis, which would be pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, But Stevens' statue is still there. One part of his legacy, though, has changed recently, uh, very recently, in fact. And I'll tell you about that at the end. Okay. But first, I I just want to be clear. The Confederate flag stands for the Confederacy. And the Confederacy, according to the vice president... And the people who voted for him over and over again and applauded him, the Confederacy stood for white supremacy. So Confederate flags might as well be a white supremacy flag. Yeah. If they know their history at all. Yeah. Some people will say, oh, it's about heritage, not hate, or whatever they've been. Or just the South, but not, you know. uh, Yeah. But if you know the history, if you know what it means. Some of the basic history. <laughs> yeah. this Basics. This is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. This is what it really stands for. And this is what people see when, when you wave this around. It's pretty clear and simple and has been written many times. Yeah. So it's not really even an arguing point. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's no, there's no question about it. There's no real argument even. There, there shouldn't be. And that's what I talked to Karen L. Cox about, was why so many people believe in this myth of the lost cause. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means and how it spread. So let's take a listen. Okay. Hello, Dr. Cox. Thank you for joining us. I'm really enjoying your latest book, No Common Ground. And enjoying might not be the right word because it's upsetting. It's appropriately upsetting, but it's compelling, it's informative, and and you make clear connections about the way the story of the Civil War was framed in the South immediately following the war, and how that story became kind of enshrined as a false history. Can you kind of just take a moment to define what the Lost Cause is? Sure. Well, it's good to be with you, and the Lost Cause, yeah, that's what we're talking about here, that the way in which white Southerners reinterpreted the Civil War, the reasons for their secession, ideas about slavery, all sorts of things. It's it's essentially a, a myth, a mythological narrative with different myths sort of embedded into the larger one of the lost cause. And the lost cause is actually a term that um, white Southerners themselves used. Um, it was first the title of a book by Edward Pollard, who was an editor with the Richmond Examiner, who published a book called The Lost Cause. It was also used by contemporaries, uh, contemporary white Southerners, for referring to the Civil War as their lost cause. And the major claims are that the South did not secede, did not fight a war to defend the institution of slavery, that it wasn't ever about slavery. It was just about states' rights, except they often leave out the part about states' rights to preserve the institution of slavery. Um, and then another major one is that the only you know real reason that the South lost the war was because they were outmanned and outgunned. In other words, the North had more more soldiers and more war materiel. But otherwise, they believe you know that Southern soldiers were better soldiers and had the better generals and all of that kind of thing. So those are the two major myths, of course. 
there are other ones that get added to the the narrative. You know, one one case in point would be that the Ku Klux Klan of Reconstruction are are heroes, mm. um, and that we should you know, and they should be acknowledged as such. But of course, the original Klan was made up of former Confederate soldiers, so that's part of the reason for that. But you you know, it's just um, it was a way in which white Southerners. Basically, they're they're the revisionist historians here. <laughs> they're they they're the ones who are trying to try to help them cope with defeat and understand defeat, and and somehow all of these soldiers, even though they you know they became heroes and uh, they weren't really seen as the defeated, and so that's really you know the lost cause is about. And of course, as I write in No Common Ground, the monuments reflect that. They reflect this this idea that these soldiers were heroes and and they're untainted by slavery in any way. And so, yeah, it's real important to understand that that narrative in order to understand everything else that kind of comes along with it. I'm fascinated by how you write about how these Confederate monuments came about, like the origin of them. And I didn't realize that it's really women who played a huge role in the beginning, I'm kind of institutionalizing this idea of the lost cause and kind of enshrining that. It sounds like it started out as a post-war act of collecting the remains, giving them proper burials and gravestones. How did that spread to monuments and to the lost cause being uh, part of education? Well, I think that the, I think that was really pretty immediate. The ladies' memorial associations that emerged after the after the war ended, they were just reconstituted at, from what had been soldiers' aid societies. They reconstituted as these memorial associations. Even when they've decided, you know, their focus is on, you know, creating Confederate cemeteries and uh, reinterring the dead from northern battlefields into their home cemeteries, for example, they already, at the, you know, had created space for a monument in those cemeteries. They were already thinking like that. And, and children were part of that ritual, what developed as Confederate Memorial Day. So children had always been part of their rituals in being able to pass down what they considered the values of the Confederate generation. So it becomes a little more formalized under the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But there's always talk, even early on in the 1870s, at unveilings of uh, Confederate monuments that that the next step is to teach children the true history, you know, and I put that in quotation marks, true history, as they understood it. And so, as I said, so the UDC is much more formal about it, that when it was founded, that group was founded in Nashville in 1894, they listed five objectives. One of those objectives was education, and it was focused on educating future generations of white Southerners. And so they, they did that in a variety of ways, of course, through their own auxiliaries, known as the Children of the Confederacy, to developing lesson plans for teachers to use in the white public schools, to in, in, including um, children in the rituals of Confederate Memorial Day. School children, I mean, because Memorial, Confederate Memorial Day, depending on where you are in the South, could be May 10th or April 26th. So that's still within the school year. So you can imagine then bringing these children out of school, taking them out of school in order to march down to the Confederate monument 
where these children would, you know, lay flowers around the monument or go to the Confederate cemetery and be part of that ritual. So the UDC is thinking, how many ways can we do this? You know, how many ways can we teach these children and make sure that they learn these lessons? Because the one thing they didn't never wanted to happen is for white children to grow up thinking that their ancestor was a traitor. And I think you you said that they referred to children as, as was it little monuments? Uh, living monuments. Living monuments, okay. Which yeah. is pretty powerful when you yeah. think about that. Because obviously the UDC is known for building monuments, the stone monuments that in front of courthouses and parks and etc. But really, to be honest with you, I think the more... Uh, insidious work that they did, if, if anything, is is to create what they called living monuments. They saw that actually as probably, at least some groups of the members of the UDC saw that as even more important than stone monuments. Create living monuments. And that is train these children, teach these children about the Confederacy and make them defenders of the lost cause and states' rights and also impart to them ideas about race and white supremacy. If you can do all those things, then when they grow up and when they become adults, they will become living monuments, adult defenders of these same values. And that's really kind of what happens. Yeah, you feel like you can see that passed through the generations. Mm-hmm. And and the, the defense of these monuments, the defense of the lost cause, which, I mean, I see, I run a Facebook page for our podcast, and whenever there's a mention of, of Lincoln or slavery, there's a lot of people that seem to come out of the woodwork as if it's their duty to to defend the ideas and to defend states' rights. And I wonder, it almost feels like folks have recently been emboldened as like a reaction to... Well, the the 1619 Project came out, and then there was a a big push against that, where it seems like now laws are being made to control things that people consider critical race theory being taught. What connection do you see to, to the lost cause and the history of that? That's really interesting, because the Daughters of the Confederacy, and I would say other, you know, Confederate organizations in the early 20th century saw it as their... Um, obligation to make sure that textbooks reflected a pro-Southern, pro-Confederate point of view. And honestly, that's the way it's been. In some ways, they've laid a blueprint for the, you know, the anti-CRT people, right? We know we're not, we know that schools are not teaching critical race theory. We know that public schools are not, that's not where they're getting that. What their concern is, is that among the anti-CRT people, is that any we would learn anything about race, anything about slavery or Jim Crow or, or any of these kinds of things. Of course, the UDC when, you know, and, and Southern states had already really kind of prevented students from learning that for well over a century, which is why you can still have People today spout off lost cause myths, including politicians. And so what's happened is that, you know, we've obviously learned a lot more about about race and slavery that has a lot to do with this wonderful scholarship of of black scholars uh, have contributed to our um, better understanding of that. And I think right now we're in a moment where, you know, there's there's it's almost like 
you know, going back in time, maybe not to the Lost Calls, but maybe in some cases Lost Calls narratives. I mean, there's there are these false narratives that there are these certain ways that they want history to be taught that they believe is true. And I'm putting that in quotes because people can't see that, right? And okay, and that's how the Confederate organizations felt about it. That we want to tell the quote unquote true history. Now, and today there's like almost like a similar thinking that what we're doing is we're going to tell the truth. Yeah. Um, you know, among the anti-CRT people, we're going to tell the truth. And we want to hold these people up, whereas like founding fathers, for example. We want to hold them up as her- heroes, right? We don't want to talk about any of the bad stuff. Part of the reason that I kind of got into studying history and, and looking at the presidents was was looking at examples of, of leadership and what makes a good leader. And what makes a good leader is taking responsibility, taking ownership. So the lack of that kind of struck me in, in the history here. They're not about to take ownership. They're not about to take ownership. They barely take ownership for, of defeat. <laughs> they really yeah. because if you were to, if you look at the landscape of the south and look at all the confederate monuments all the place names street names everything named for confederates or former confederate generals or soldiers or local heroes of the confederacy you would think that that the confederacy had actually won yeah and it sounds like i, I didn't quite realize how at the the unveiling of these monuments it was almost like a, a victory lap over the end of Reconstruction. That was kind of a new idea to me. And if you could talk a little bit about that and that feeling in the South. I think that's really spot on. It is because when you read over some of these speeches, there are many references to Reconstruction and how. And, and in some ways, in these early unveilings they would choose men who represented that for them it it is when in some way a very much a celebration of white supremacy and so they'll pick speakers for example i i know one and i won't i'm not going to say which specific one but where you know this one of the speakers at the unveiling had been a member of the ku klux klan of reconstruction both were veterans both were confederate veterans the other speaker had been very vocal in leading the white supremacy campaign in North Carolina. So these are their these are the people they choose to speak at the unveilings. They're also making references to the restoration of white supremacy, which took place over a decade beginning in 1890 with the Mississippi plan, which instituted things like poll taxes and understanding clause in order for people to vote and basically work to eliminate the black vote. And by 1901, I would say every Southern state, every former state of the Confederacy had eliminated black male voters. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. You also talk about the history of opposition among um black people who had to see these and, and lived around them and, and fought against the idea that these were just memorials. If you could kind of just talk a little bit about that and when when that first started to come about. Well, the very, I mean, really early black leaders spoke out about these monuments. Um, Frederick Douglass <laughs> was the first, right? He talks about these monuments as monuments of folly um, in 1870, W.E.B. Du Bois will later make a trip to the South and say the inscription on these monuments should say dedicated to men who fought for the perpetuation of human slavery. So there are the, the big name people, but the real people who have to deal with it are local, you know, are in the in the in each community. And uh, we have black journalists are really leaders in that. John Mitchell Jr., who was the editor of the Richmond Planet, for example, in 1890, wrote many editorials about uh, the unveiling of that, that large equestrian statue to Robert E. Lee that once graced Monument Avenue in Richmond. And so so we have people talking about that. You know, Black Southerners are, are definitely speaking out on this. And then I want people to understand that, you know, some say, oh, there have never, you know, people didn't protest. People could not protest publicly for fear of losing their lives. They would, could have been lynched for publicly protesting Confederate monuments. But by all means, did they, like, they did not uh, agree with having these th- items in their community. And so one of the things that I looked at was a few decades later was a, a question in, that was posed to readers of the Chicago Defender, which is the leading black newspaper in, in the country, and it's a newspaper that circulates in the South. And the question was, do you think there should be a federal law abolishing Confederate monuments? That, that they shouldn't be built and they shouldn't be exist. And it, there was an overwhelming support for that, for some, such a law from the readers of the Chicago Defender. Because they recognized what these um, statues meant. Not only did they see them as monuments to traitors, but also as monuments that taught lessons to young children, young white children, to 
as one of them said, if these monuments were, weren't there, um, the white community would not be so willing to practice hate against our people. So they're saying they they're saying these things all along. Of course, in the immediate post-civil rights era, after the Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act are passed, you begin to see much more public critique and protest of Confederate monuments. And once you begin to see black elected officials, the first black elected officials since the period of Reconstruction, those individuals begin to speak out against Confederate symbols on the grounds of government because they represent government and they represent their local communities. And so it's there's a whole legacy. And so by the time you get to the the protests that came following the Charleston Massacre in 2015, they're building on a, a legacy of protests that goes back over a century. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, what do you say to someone who thinks that to remove a statue or to remove a monument is to erase history? Yeah. First of all, I think we have to understand that these monuments don't represent the history of the Civil War at all. They don't really even represent history. If anything, they are artifacts of the Jim Crow period. The vast majority of them are the artifacts of Jim Crow. So what I say to them, you know, remove, removing a monument is not removing history. It's not erasing history. It's removing a divisive object. If we want to know the history of the Civil War, of the monuments themselves, that's easy to find. (laughs) You can read about them in books. You can find photographs of them, postcards of them. You can read the speeches like I did for writing the book. I can read the speeches. And um, there's all kinds of historical evidence out there from which you could write a history of these monuments, which I did. So, you know, so, so that's, you know, history, you know, is this thing that we all have access to in our libraries and archives in you know, private collections. So it's not about erasing history because it never was about history to begin with. If you, if you look at the motivations of the people who erected the monuments, and especially a group like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, Yes, they would say we're, they're honoring their ancestors. They would say that. But see, a memorial is something different, right? A memorial embedded in that word is the word memory, and it doesn't mean history. It's memory. It's about preserving memory and not really history. And so, but the UDC would often say, even at the unveilings, this, these are objects that are to teach lessons to future generations. So they weren't looking always the, to the past and to history. What they were looking at is how can they shape future generations' minds about what this was all about. So they're looking ahead. So there's, it's not about a pr- preservation of history in any way. And uh, th- that history can be learned. No one's jumping up and down and crying when, um, you know, uh, a, a developer goes in and wipes out a, a, a black cemetery. If you really care about history, you'd get out there and you'd care about all kinds of history. But that's not, that's not what's happening here. Yeah. 
but what we see with the Confederate monuments is not it's they're attached to this false narrative about what the war had been about. And they're making heroes out of defenders of slavery, heroes out of men who um, took up arms against the United States. It's a very problematic narrative. And so um, it's only recently, too, that we're beginning to see, for the first time, in the South, monuments to the U.S. colored troops. Mm. Um, we're beginning to see see those, and I can... I think there's one that was that's unveiled in Wilmington, North Carolina, one in Clarksville, Tennessee, and I know one in the works for Natchez, Mississippi. So those things are starting to happen, which is like you wouldn't have expected. And just, you know, and just the other day, they unveiled a monument to Emmett Till in Greenwood, Mississippi, about 10 mi- which is 10 miles from where, you know, he was murdered, but it's it's in this community. It's in that community. Um, in a community where the only monument that had ever been there was one to the Confederacy. So it's, it's, it's a real interesting time, and it's like where these things are concerned. I don't know, you know what that means for Confederate monuments going forward. Every time I think this issue has calmed down, there's another explosion. <laughs> and the last explosion was summer 2020 after George Floyd's murder. Mm. And it, I mean, it does seem that there's a anytime there's some sort of racial progress, there's a there's a reaction to that, is what it it kind of seems like. There, there's definitely been that. Yeah, there's definitely been this push and pull, this back and forth. But we know this. We know this not just through monuments, but we know this through history that when African Americans make progress, there is a there is a backlash. That's what the 1890s was about, you know, the, not only the laws, but the racial violence and the epidemic of lynching that took place. What's interesting is that forms the backdrop of the history of when these monuments were going up. So it's really, really hard for me, and it's, it's you know, suspending <laughs> belief that, that, you, that those things aren't related. Yeah. And for people who, who would say, you know, you're erasing history— to, to play devil's advocate, if they were to say, well, what's, what's the harm? It's a tradition. They've been up for 100 years. What's the harm of continuing to have these things in the public space and to have this message there? Well, there there's can be real harm. And I say this because, especially for these Confederate monuments that sit on the grounds of courthouses, mm-hmm. county courthouses throughout the South that have these monuments, they're their purpose is to be the local center of democracy. You, you may have registered to vote there. That's where court cases are held. You know, it's it's uh, where justice could be meted out. And you know, the, the the history of that has been you know really prejudicial toward the black community. In a modern context. These monuments, particularly when there's some controversy over the issue of the monument being in front of the courthouse, it attracts the worst of us. It attracts racists and neo-Nazis and Proud Boys who want to defend these monuments. I mean, Charlottesville was obviously the biggest example of that. They claim to be there because they want to defend the monument. In that case, it was about... You know, a clarion called, you know, for white nationalism. 
But you see it playing out in smaller communities in the South in which the Proud Boys show up or the local members of Sons of Confederate Veterans show up and and they're they're wearing, you know, Confederate gear, or they're waving Confederate battle flags, and it's it's a scene of, of intimidation. And these things are playing out and there there is real fear. There is a, a case that I know of and I, I don't I can't talk about the, the specifics because I've been a I didn't get to testify, but I was hired as an expert witness related to a particular monument. And, and, and it has a long history of racial violence. Even in the, in the last couple of years around this monument, why these things are harmful is that uh, one of the, there was an individual woman who was wanting to, um, who was part of the group that wanted to remove the monument. And um, she had people calling her threatening to lynch her son. That's real. That is very, very real. And these are the people that call themselves defenders. So there, there, is, there is a real concern that these things do harm and attract harmful situations for people. Now, speaking to those kinds of folks seems almost impossible to, to change minds of people that, that far ingrained, but to people who... I don't know, might be more open to, to learning about, you know, actual history. I'm wondering, have you had interactions with, with readers or with people that you've spoken to that makes you think it's not impossible to make a difference, to change minds? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Here's, here's where I fall. You know, I know that there are people who are not, I'm not, I'm never going to reach. And then on the other end of the spectrum are the people who already believe that, and or they might think that all monuments ought to come down. They already, they're already there, right? What I try to reach are the people in the middle, and the people in the middle are the people who still want to learn. Maybe their minds could be changed, but they still want to learn the real history of these monuments. And those are the people I think I I try to reach out to, and I've had. I've had people come. I remember this. This was in North Carolina. This woman was a white woman, probably in her 80s. She started walking toward me, and I thought, oh, gosh, here I go. I'm going to get an earful, you know, about this. But what she said to me was, you changed my mind. I was not expecting that because I'm sure she grew up on the lost cause. Yeah. So I think also... What's interesting to me, what's happened with me in, in, in some cases, there are interracial, there's interracial cooperation that's going on in communities um, around the issue of monuments or have been. And there's also people of faith who want to know more and think through this issue and what does that mean for them in their churches where they might want to welcome people of color so I think that I'm not going to beat my head up against the wall trying to convince people who are not going to be convinced, and they're not willing to be convinced. Those are the people that troll on my Twitter feed. <laughs> it's like I don't, or they write me really nasty racist emails. Okay, I just quote it. You know, that's not going to keep me from. Here's the thing: I'm a white Southerner. You don't get to determine for me what that history is. You guys that are the defenders who think you know everything. I'm like, you don't get, you don't own history. 
These people do not own history. They might believe certain things about, about these monuments, etc., but they don't own history. History is for everyone, and everyone needs an opportunity to be able to learn that history. And I worry for our children when politicians are weighing in on or local groups of parents who are bullying teachers and bullying school boards and saying you can't learn about these things, whatever those things might be. It's not just monuments, it's other stuff as well. You don't get to tell people what their children can learn. And I think it's really, really imperative that historians speak up about it in ways that whatever way they can. I can't be everywhere at once. But I wrote a book that I think can be helpful to help people to understand the issue. And when I'm asked, I try to, you know, I speak to community organizations as well as academic audiences. Yeah, and I think that your book and speaking the truth to the history behind the things that are being espoused now is, is, is so important. And it is encouraging to know that there are people out there that, that are listening, that do want to learn. And yeah, I just want to um, hope that the message can reach more people because, you know, as, as long as you've been doing this, uh, I haven't been arguing on the internet about it for that long and I'm already tired. So I can't imagine, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, it can be exhausting. But I think one of the things I try to do with No Common Ground was to make it as clear as possible with all of the evidence I could muster so that it leaves no doubt about intention uh, you know, of the monuments, about their relationship to white supremacy and racial injustice, but also the ways in which Black Southerners have pushed back against that narrative. I think that's also an important part of the story that needs to be told and needs to be heard. If readers do want to find out more about you or, or your works um, and, and not send you hate mail, uh, where can they find you? <laughs> um, well, they could go to, I have a website, Karen Cox Historian, all one word, dot com. And it has a list of my books and other things I've written. And, and, and the thing is, it's like, while I'm sort of known as that person who writes about monuments and speaks about monuments, I've written other kinds of books on, on Southern history, and, and um, I'm eager to get going on a, on a new book that has nothing to do with monuments, and uh, I'm pretty happy about that. Can you tell us a little about that? Um, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, in April of 1940, there was something called the Rhythm Club Fire, that took place in Natchez, Mississippi. And it, when it ha- occurred, it was the deadliest club fire in the history of the United States. Every single victim was African-American. And it's not something that's been written about. And um, soon after that, and a couple of years later, you had the Coconut Grove fire in Boston, which had even more victims of the fire. But what's interesting is, is the way in which um, these tragedies were covered, and it was very much fell down along the lines of race. And so I'm, I'm, it's, it's this moment in history, but it's also in this uh, fascinating place of Natchez, which I've written about before. You know, and it, it it sits at the you know center of things like the Great Migration from Mississippi to Chicago, um, jazz and blues, and the Chitlin Circuit, and because you had a jazz band from Chicago playing that night. Um, about race and class and memory. There's so many things to the to the story, and it's one I just I, I'm you know drawn to and want to work on and write about.
That sounds fascinating, and, and I look forward to the finished product. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. Um, it was really a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you, too, Howard. Okay, there's just, I mean, my note, I was taking notes while listening to her. She's fabulous. Yeah. I, uh, you know, my notes are scattered because it's an emotional topic. Mm-hmm. Even for a privileged white girl like me, you know, there's, it's, it's just a very emotional, heated topic. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I was standing up with a feeling of, yeah, we shouldn't have oppressors and those who believed in slavery towering above our society in monument form. But I think what she made me realize in that is that it goes way beyond that. Yeah. It's not just memorializing oppressors. She really made me realize that the monuments are direct links to white supremacy. Yeah. I, I just thought it was also really fascinating that true opposition to this is also just as just as um, old as the monuments themselves. I mean, even in 1870. Yeah. You know, people have been against these monuments just as long as they've been up. Yeah. As well. Um, but maybe not as loudly because it wasn't safe at yeah. the time. So I, I thought that was interesting, too. But I think what really educated me was how this wasn't a rewriting of history that went over generations and generations and years and years. This was, they rewrote history right away. Yeah, it was immediate. So that was like really shocking to me and reminded me so much of what a narcissistic, abusive, emotional relationship looks like. You have two people fighting and the next morning they, you know, one lost the battle. The narcissist lost the battle. They wake up and the narcissist says, well, that's not what I said. It's mm. like the ultimate deflecting. Well, I didn't say anything about slavery. Yeah. I was talking about states' rights. It's like, no, you were talking about slavery. The next morning, you know, they lost the war and then they were rewriting it immediately. This isn't something that slowly developed. This yeah. was a this was a conscious effort to to sweep it under the rug. And and that's also hypocritical to me. I'm very confused about one day someone standing up and saying, you know, white people are supreme and black people should be subordinate and that's the natural order of nature. And then the next day saying, actually, we weren't even fighting for slavery. So right. there's a really a really big... Uh, there's an implicit acknowledgement that they know that that opinion is, is wrong or yeah. abhorred. Yeah. And it's only when they have power that they feel free to express to their true feelings. That. Yeah, so th- I didn't realize how quickly they rewrote history. Yeah, me neither. It was immediate. Yeah, I mean, they, it, it started in the, the 1870s, 80s, 1890s, stressing this lost cause myth to to children and creating these living monuments. And, and yeah, we talked about how that, that lives on. Generation after generation, there are still people whose parents instill these things into them. Yeah. There are still school teachers who are teaching this. When I took the AP U.S. history test... Mm-hmm. Um, in high school, one of the essay questions was, what were the causes of the Civil War? And I knew that in order to get a high score on that, because I'd studied what the answers were supposed to be, mm-hmm. the answers were, I mean, of course, slavery, but just as important were states' rights and economic reasons. Oh, my gosh. You know, it was it was very clear that it's not just about slavery. There's other things going on. And that was in, you know, the North. In the South, I don't know how differently that would have been stressed. 
I mean, that's just disturbing. And it's, you're crazy smart for knowing like what they wanted from you in that moment. That's all I studied. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it was to understand what they wanted was to this rewrote in history. Yeah. But when you think about like what it would take for the South, they would have to rewrite everything again. I mean, everything is re- is written now with that lens. Every street name, every monument, you know, everything is written in that lens. I mean, would they have to rename every well, street? Well, I think have- slowly, community by community, some of them are making the decision to mm-hmm. change the names of places, like yeah. like Calhoun Square mm-hmm. in Savannah, yeah, um, where this cornerstone speech was given. Mm-hmm. Um, these places are are choosing to take back that history. Mm-hmm. And and like Dr. Cox said, it has to be at the community level right. that these things are slowly clawed back. And So it is a slow progression. It can't be an overhaul. But starting with statues that were born out of white supremacy and born out of a blatant written lie. Yeah. I want to call out that since I spoke to her, Karen's work has been published in another great book called Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, edited by Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer. I highly recommend both this book and No Common Ground. Yeah. So earlier, we talked about Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. For all of his orating about the inferiority of the black race, his private life tells a different story. Interesting. Gotta wonder if there's some self-loathing and protesting too much, you know, in these huge call-outs. Yeah, yeah. Trying to hide their own truth. For the very first time, just last month over the Juneteenth weekend, relatives of two different branches of Alexander Stevens' family gathered at his Georgia estate, Liberty Hill. One group included white descendants of Alexander's brother, John Lindsay Stevens, Alexander was never married. He didn't have any children, at least not that he Mm -hmm. recognized. The other group gathered there were the black descendants of a woman named Eliza Stevens. Eliza was just six years old when Alexander bought her in an auction. And according to family oral history, she was 12 years old when Alexander raped her and she was forced to carry his child. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, So you've got these two branches. There's the white side of the family, um, brothers Alexander M. and Brendan Stevens. So Alexander, he's in the final stages of getting a doctorate in history at the University of Michigan. Wow. And he talks about how he and his brother, they'd grown up being taught to revere their famous ancestor. It wasn't until they were adults that they'd even heard about the Cornerstone speech. Oh, what? Yeah. In 2017, they wrote a letter to Georgia lawmakers representing the whole Stevens family and they requested the removal of the statue of Stevens from Statuary Hall in the Capitol. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's powerful, coming from his own descendants. Right. Um, heading up the black side of Stevens' family uh, is real estate investor Jill Patton and her aunt, Elizabeth Coleman. Jill wrote a letter that reached a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Jim Galloway. And it outlined the story that she was the descendant of Alexander Stevens and Eliza Stevens and the family history that had gone over generations carrying that. Galloway, this reporter, he's the one who connected these two sides of Stevens' family. Um, And he was part of that first joint family reunion in 2023. Yeah. 
All of this info comes from two articles that Jim Galloway wrote for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, by the way. You can find links to them in our show notes. I want to share one sentence from Galloway's piece published just last month because it really captures this newly formed family. Mm -hmm. He writes that DNA testing has found no positive link between the two branches is less important than the indisputable fact that these two branches, descendants of enslavers and the enslaved, sprang from the same patch of clay and were now gathered together under the shelter of pavilion number three. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that I really wish I knew more about the air, how it felt there. Yeah. You know, how um, it went. It, it sounds like it was really a, a collaborative, like, singing, talking openly about the sins that had occurred there, mm. offering forgiveness. Um, I believe it opened up with asking people to take a seat next to someone they never met before. Mm. Um, it sounds like, a, I mean, the, the collaboration wow. of these groups is really, really impressive and I think can, can be a blueprint mm. um, for these types of things. Wow. That's moving. Yeah. And very sad. I mean, yeah, just, I'm, I'm sure not a singular story. I mean, yeah, that seems very common, honestly, that slaves were raped all yeah. the time. Yeah. The United Daughters of Confederacy, the UDC, plays a role here, too. In the 1930s, they took over Alexander Stevens plantation home, Liberty Hill. On that land was a two story nine room house where descendants of Eliza Stevens had been living for decades. The daughters didn't like that black people were living in that house, and they managed to get control of the property from Eliza's heirs. They turned it into a museum honoring the Confederacy. So it, it was never about the truth or preserving real history. It was always about indoctrinating children with a feel-good story that they wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And black people just got in the way of that. I don't even think it's a feel-good story. Well, it's, it's about not feeling bad. <laughs> That's really the crux of it. They don't want to feel guilty. They don't want to feel bad. If you make my child feel bad, I will sue you. <laughs> the idea of racism and the terrible things that happened, none of those are quite as terrible to some people as trying to make them feel guilty about it, which yeah. I don't even know why they associate guilt so personally to the truth. It's mm-hmm. not an attack on them, right. the things that their ancestors did, right. but but they take it that way. Maybe it's a, an attack on their truth and how they've been raised. I think more that's it. so than anything. I think that's it. Um, I just know that if Germany can own up to the Holocaust, the Confederate States can own up to slavery. You would I, think. You know, like this is not, it's something that's still being held on to. It's really dangerous and scary. I agree. I agree that that story, that myth, it has no business being retold today. Mm-hmm. And I, I see no reason to defend monuments to hatred and lies yeah they're not even monuments to to history at all i've quoted this before but i I can't help but think of it again in 1818 john adams uh, talking about witch trials and religious persecution said why should we not honestly and candidly investigate the errors and crimes of our ancestors that we may correct reform and avoid them exactly it just makes more sense than trying to bury the past. And it's like it's like burying the past, covering the grave with a false memorial to the time that we bravely fought off those witches. <laughs> it's, it's false. Yeah, it's, it's false. absolutely false. And I, I, think, I think we can take a lesson from the descendants of Alexander Stevens, uh, from Jill Patton and Elizabeth Coleman for keeping the story of their ancestor Eliza Stevens alive 
and Alexander M. and his brother Brendan for not reacting to horrible truths like like some politicians and parents. They didn't get defensive. They didn't complain about people making them feel bad. No, they, they're acknowledging and investigating and collaborating and moving forward. And that's how we reckon with our past and improve our future. It's, it's not hard. And the difference it makes is monumental. <laughs> nice pun. Um, yeah, I can't remember who made the quote. I want to say it was Thomas Jefferson or maybe John Adams talking about how he wouldn't wear the coat as a boy. Yeah, that was Thomas was, Jefferson talking about he... the boy. Uh, he couldn't expect the coat that fitted him as a boy to still fit as a man. And that as times change, so do laws and yeah. our understanding. Yeah, we can't we can't hold on to this. I mean, yeah. the, the history of, of it is clear and damaging. Um, it's not something to fight over. Right. Um, yeah, it's very powerful. Yeah. And a current issue. And it's it's just crazy to me how deep-rooted and far back this this goes. Right. It's, I mean, it, it hopeful in that, yeah, things are being renamed and, and you know, they're lifting new monuments up to, to, you know, retell what actually happened. Yeah. So there's hope there, but the fact that this has been going on for so long, it makes me feel pretty defeated. And even now, it's still, it's a push and pull. It's, it's a not... push and pull, but it's great that Cox is like, you know, she feels that she's changing minds and she's doing it on a wider level. And I mean, that's really admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's great. I mean, she's like a writer, but also an activist in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, so she's, it's, she's a historian and she's sharing history. Yeah. And I think that's as case, simple as that. In this case, history should change minds. Yeah. In this know? case, it really should. Um, so thank you so much for listening. If you're new to the pod, we invite you to dive into our back catalog. Um, lots of episodes are a little more lighthearted than this one, by the way. <laughs> this was, yeah, this was powerful and heavy. Yeah. Upsetting in a lot of ways. <sighs> yes. Uh, check out the blog at plodpod.com. Follow us on Facebook. Reach out. Consider joining our, our Patreon family for some bonus material and fun extras, including our full unedited video interview with Karen L. Cox. Yeah. Um, I want to share something that a listener sent us. Oh, okay. Hannah. I hope it's nice. It, it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, Hannah just sent a note saying, hello, I just want to say how much I love your podcast. It has really kept me going through some dark nights, and I'm so grateful mm. for it. You guys are lovely. You're lovely, Hannah. Yeah. That's, that's a lovely thing to say. That's exactly what I wrote. You're lovely, Hannah. <laughs> we are of one mind. Um, <laughs> no, that's a lovely thing to say, Hannah. And I'm sorry you've had some dark nights at all. Yeah. Um, many of us have been there, so I'm, I'm glad we could be there for you. Um, it makes us feel that this is all worthwhile to yeah. hear that. Uh, PM us um, an address or, or something, someplace we can send some stickers to and we'd be happy to, Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> we hope we can still be there for you. Yes. Until next time, thank you for plotting along with us. Thanks for plotting. See you next season. Oh, man, that is a can of worms if I ever have heard one or seen one or read one.